0: So this is Coffee with the Coalition, and we are welcoming Joyce Petro and Anna Drevich. Is that how you say your last name, Drevich?
1: That was yeah. perfect, yep.
0: Okay, um, and they're going to talk to us about the program Equipped for Freedom. So uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about it yourselves and talk about the
2: program, it's go ahead. Anna, you want to kick us off?
1: I was just going to ask you, would you like me to?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, so Quit for Freedom is a nonprofit organization. Um, we assist individuals uh, funded by NMRE in the 21 regions um, below the UP, uh, and then also we have a lady sober living in Petoskey um, that can facilitate 11 girls. Um, We usually run between five and eight to stay comfortable. There's usually one of the girls um, appointed as house manager. She kind of oversees and makes sure the girls are doing their chores, just helps with that extra accountability. Joyce and Kim Van Hoosier, they oversee this whole project and they run a house meeting on Tuesdays, 4.30 to 7, correct? Yeah, about that. Okay. And give the ladies an opportunity to do a weekly check in, t- talk about progress, um, struggles. Uh, they have dinner together. And um, it's usually like the step right before, as Kim says, where the girls spread their wings and fly on their own, um, and is a safe place to basically rebuild and set a solid foundation to get back on track. Um, we support individuals with substance use disorder and in early recovery and can provide over the for- phone or uh, in- in-person in meetings to like apply for insurance, um, food stamps, uh, resources, finding treatment, finding if they've relocated, finding a personal care provider, therapist, um, and just someone to talk to through all this. So, um, is there anything else?
2: Yeah, I'll kind of fill in a little bit and then maybe we can open it up for questions. So Equip for Freedom, we started with the women's recovery housing in uh, Emmett County there. It's located on Howard Road uh, in Petoskey. And it started when uh, Kim and myself uh, were working in a local treatment center and, and we primarily handled the women Uh, population at that treatment center. And we could get those women well, or on a a level of wellness for 30, 60, 90 days while they're an inpatient. But afterwards, uh, their discharge plans were pretty meek and mild. Um, There's only uh, one women's recovery housing at that time. uh, And that was in Charlevoix County. In Charlevoix, that's the Joppa house. And at that time they only had a maximum capacity of five women. Uh, for their recovery housing. And that's also faith-based. So you can see where for some people that probably wouldn't always resonate with them and they may not um, stick with it when it doesn't uh, meet their needs. So uh, Kim and I were eating lunch one day at work and we're like, we should open our own house. And I, well, I think she said it and I laughed and I thought she was joking. And um, we started having more serious conversations about it because there was a huge need for it. Uh, At that time, we were sending women uh, two, two and a half hours away to another women's recovery housing, primarily in uh, Mount Pleasant, Remus area, and that's Sisters of Sobriety. Great program there. But again, many of these women have uh, courts uh, mandated by the courts to stay in the area. They just can't all up and leave after completing treatment. They've got other commitments such as work and they've got, you know, they've had good jobs. So they, the, the need for them to stay in that area uh, was a must as well as at that same time, we were really on the breadth and depth of creating a recovery community in Emmett County. So we had all these expansion of multiple pathways. So it made sense to put a women's recovery house there. Um, if you look at Northern Michigan today, there is several, um, housing options, recovery-related for men, but there's very few for women. Uh, And then there's very, very few for women and children. There are a couple here in the state, but... So anyway, we started looking at houses and we settled on a house. And shortly after opening that house in 2019, um, within a few months, we went through the certification process. So we are a certified recovery residence through the Michigan Association recovery residences. Not long after that, Equip for Freedom expanded and we implemented a community navigator here at the Otsego United Way. And the reason that the Otsego United Way was chosen is uh, this building location kind of has a, a wraparound community support. And at that time, the only thing that was missing was something for substance use services. Some type of navigational aspect was needed. Um, We have uh, the refuge, which which helps with homeless crisisness. Uh, we have the food pantry here. We have the United Way, all the services that they offer, and then we have RSVP that provides transportation as well as we have the Salvation Army, who's embedded in this in this building. And we had nothing for wraparound community support uh, for substance use. And the reason why I say that is uh, Chris, who handles our homeless crisisness. Uh, would come to me and say I I know what you do we've talked I've got this person who's homeless um I'll tell you they smell like uh, they have a strong presence of of alcohol on their breath and um I can get them a motel voucher but I don't know if that's a safe option for them right now for three days and I said well ask them if they want to go to treatment and she's like how do I do that I'm like let me come over and help you so through the Recovery Coach Academy training that we've taken, which um, you know, gives you the motivational interviewing skills, things like that, uh, how to get people to change, recognize their reason for change and why they need to do that. Uh, that was our first successful one. The person's like, you're right. I, you put me in a motel. I'm just gonna go to the liquor store every day. And in three days, you're probably not gonna help me again. Yeah, I've been wanting to go to treatment for a long time what do i need to do um so we walked through with that person we uh, signed them up for medicaid at that moment that's something that anna now can help people with um it was a learning process with chris um so that she can kind of manage that a little bit um, on her own when needed and of course we're here to support her whenever that that does happen Uh, but then we you know if you've never helped someone get to treatment um and it's your first time doing it, you will find it is a difficult process to navigate through when a person needs Medicaid signed up. They need to have that approval rating or the approval back on my bridges. You've got to facilitate the phone call with NMRE. You got to find a a bed location sometimes. Um, It's quite difficult. And it's really difficult for a person who's struggling with it to manage all of those things without someone that can speak on uh, with a level head and say, you know what? This is, this is going to take us some time, but we're going to get through it together and give them that reassurance. So um, that's why we implemented the community navigator here. And like Anna said, she helps with uh, my bridges applications. She can help with the state emergency relief if that's needed um, for burial assistance, whatever a person might need. She can help someone renew their benefits uh sign up for food assistance or cash assistance through my bridges and um and then a lot of the other aspects is uh the treatment courts will sometimes send people here there they have to find employment within two weeks of being accepted into the treatment court program and how is that person really supposed to do that when they don't when maybe they misplaced or lost their driver's license state id or social security card those are all the other uh navigation Navigational aspects that Anna can help with because they're going to need those three documents in order to gain employment. Um, you know, with Homeland Security, you need to provide your photo ID or a government ID. You need to provide a social security card within so many days or hours of being hired or accepting a position. You need to provide that birth certificate um, for those employment documents. So, and again, all of that can be quite difficult for one pan, one person to manage on their own. Those are some of the aspects we can also help with. And of course, uh, referrals to recovery supportive services, where are Alana clubs, where are uh, meeting places, You know, where, where are these online meetings found and how do I get the IDs um, for joining those recovery supportive meetings beyond uh sometimes even recovery related aspects there's a lot of those life obstacles and barriers that anna or myself can also help with
1: um i think I, you don't yeah. mind if i chime in right there like yeah. grace just said obstacles and barriers it's like waking up and then having a unrealistic list that it's like what's the point point? and mm-hmm. so i feel like having someone who's been there and has that life experience and can walk someone through there. And like you said, when someone is struggling and really needs to be able to have a coherent conversation and do all these things that they probably haven't been doing, not even having a normal meal schedule or regular bathing to get back mm-hmm. on track and then have to hop through all these hoops. So. Right. most definitely. Yeah.
2: You know, as in all my years as a recovery coach, primarily the women that I've worked with uh, their issues are not, necessarily picking up that drink or drug again, it's managing all of life's obstacles and barriers that sometimes will uh, cause them to be frustrated, overwhelmed, get anxiety, depression. Uh, Those are the things that may cause them to pick up a drink or a drug. Most often they've got a good handle on what they need to do to stay clean and sober. But when things start to compact and pile on top of them, it just becomes very overwhelming And um, that's where we step in and and again, help and guide them through it. And then not just do the work for them, but kind of show them, hey, this is how you can do it. Uh, Look, this is how we just did your um, Medicaid application. And I'll tell you, uh, we still have organizations and agencies that refer people to go to MDHHS and, and apply for Medicaid. Please don't do that. Please send them our way. It takes me 12 minutes. To sign someone up for medicaid from start to finish as long as they have primarily uh their information on hand like a social security card if they don't have their card their number memorized it makes it a little bit more difficult um waiting for them to find those documents but uh you know if they have majority of that information it's 12 minutes start to finish and that's huge because that's that's showing them that yes this looked like a you know a task that wasn't going to be able to be completed but we just got this done in you know a couple of minutes this isn't going to be so bad and it's like okay what's next um so i i've always seen the huge need for that uh knowing if someone if uh they came up here from kalamazoo and they kind of feel like they're stuck in this area and uh, they've been here maybe for six months or a year and um they need to go to treatment Ooh their information that's in the system that's going to designate the pihp that you need to call you know maybe this isn't their permanent residence maybe kalamazoo or battle creek is their permanent residence we need to call schwimba which is the southwest michigan behavioral health knowing where someone lives and what pihp you need to call in order to get someone access to treatment is like People are just like, I'm, I, I don't even really know what you're talking about. You just said three things that I've never heard before in my life. Um, and so sometimes we need to change their address. If they have become more of a permanent resident for this area, that's a simple fix. Uh, but knowing which PIHP, and then uh, further from that, you just can't go to any treatment center. If you're from uh, the Lakeshore Regional Entity Area and you want to go to treatment at Bear River Health, they may or may not be contracted with that PIHP in that treatment center. So you, you spinning your wheels trying to find a bed uh, for a person to go to is not always the best route. You wanna make that contact to the PIHP and find out who they contract with and then maybe locate a bed. Um, the, last, the last couple of weeks, uh, it's been very frustrating to help people get into treatment, And again, this is where we need some help on all levels as far as advocacy goes. Uh, There's a seven to 10 day wait period on most treatment centers for someone just to get into detox. Seven to 10 day wait. And uh, Suzanne and uh, Lisa, you guys were both at the Crawford uh, County Uh, fan launch. And you know what? Linda Davis said that day really struck me and it saddened me and it's angered me all at the same time. And that's advocacy, but she is 100% right. At the onset of COVID two, almost what, two years ago, uh, we were able to shut down the entire country, countries. We shut down entire countries. We were able to get head to toe PPE out to businesses and organizations um, and all across the board. We were able to get the automotive industry to stop making cars and, and turn their production into making ventilators. We were able to get the alcohol industry to stop making, well, maybe not stop making alcohol, but make some shifts.
1: And- are making half gallons of hand sanitizer.
2: Yeah. And they were able to make hand sanitizer, but yet we can't get someone into treatment. We can't get them at bed for seven to 10 days when they are dying to get in there. That angers me. And I've only dealt with that a lot the last few weeks where people are just, what do you do for 7 to 10 days? We give them a recovery coach. We do a warm handoff and say, here's a recovery coach. Uh, Call them if you need it. Well, they're going to need them 24-7 of those 7 to 10 days. They need like 70 recovery coaches, and we don't have that type of support to give. You know, I, I don't get why if someone goes to the emergency room, why they can't get the treatment and care for their disease. Substance use disorder is a disease, the disease of the brain. Why can't we get them the treatment and care that they need? I at least get them to somewhat of a stabilization until we can get them into a treatment bed facility. But we have such a huge gap. And then there's a huge gap on the outside of it of um, once they get to treatment, they make it to treatment. You know, while someone's in treatment, there's very few people that ever leave. There's very few people that disconnect and leave treatment. There are some, but there's very few. They're safe. They're in a protected bubble. They respond very well to treatment. Uh, They find other individuals who are suffering just like them. And they start to learn, they start to grow, they start to eat better food, they get nutrition into their bodies. And then in that 30, 60, 90 days, what do we most often do with those people? We put them right back into the environment where they were sick and dying. And I've said this before, and I apologize for those that have to hear it again, but if you had a house plant that was living in an office, just like my office here, I don't have any doors or I have a door to get out of here, but I don't have any windows. I don't, I can't see sunlight. And I don't have water, but if I had a house plant in here and it was sick and dying and I moved it out into the hallway where there was a window and I remembered to give it water from the drinking fountain at least, and it started to turn green and flourish again. In 30, 60, 90 days, you think I would move that plant, house plant back into this office? I sure wouldn't. But yet we do that with people. We get them well for 30, 60, 90 days and then we move them right back into the environment that made them sick. That does not sit well with me. And we have to do something different. So there has to be recovery housing that is implemented in um, all of our counties throughout the state of Michigan. There has to be a recovery community organization that is focused on ending the stigma, um, building recovery communities in general where people are accepted. And we understand what the levels of treatment are and including uh, medically assisted treatment. Um, I was on another call yesterday and someone said, Well, someone that uses MAT is just drug seeking. Well, you know, uh, my neighbor had a urinary tract infection. And they went to the ER it was so bad. Do you realize that that person too was also drug seeking? They want to get better. We all are somewhat seeking something to make us better, but yet we look at it in this negative way that someone's actually seeking. Uh, drug seeking as a a bad term, if we're ill, we're almost all seeking something, some type of medication to make us better, right? But we look at this population group of other people. Anyway, got on my soapbox, I said what I wanted to say. Um, And so that's a little bit about Equip for Freedom. And uh, so we are also a recovery community organization that is an accreditation through Faces and Voices of Recovery we meet the levels of uh, what that organization is. Uh, We have a board, um, more than 50% of our board is in recovery and uh, we focus on the navigational aspects and uh, recovery housing for women. So those are a couple of those things uh, that I touched on. And then briefly, I wanna talk about, uh, for my full-time work, what I do is I work for the Northern Michigan Opioid uh, response consortium where um, our work spans across four buckets, prevention, treatment, recovery, and workforce. And right now we are in 18 northern Michigan counties, hopefully soon to be 21. Uh, we have a medical director, a project director that is on our team. Most of you may have met uh, David McGram, He's our medical director and Lisa Jack and Chuck is our project director. And then myself and, and James are the project associates. Uh, we have 35 members within our consortium, and we are a nonprofit. Um, and we're not just focused on the opioid crisis, we are focused on all substances. Um, you know, the alcohol is still the number one killer, and it's also the most, most widely accepted, socially accepted substance uh, throughout our communities. We host business after hours uh, in our communities where we know there's going to be a presence of alcohol at those community events, but we don't promote or advertise many events uh, that don't contain alcohol or, or, or have alcohol present. So you know, your business after hours, your chamber of commerce meetings, sometimes those um, have, have alcohol presence, but um, you know we really need to look at all substances. I always say that when we focus on one weed, another one pops up. When we put this huge emphasis and focus on opiates, uh, methamphetamines became on the rise, came back on the rise. And uh, we still have large numbers of people dying from alcohol. In fact, over 300 people die every single day from substances. Every single day, over 300 people. That is like a major airline plane crashing every single day with 300 people on board. And if that was the way that we looked at it, every community would be doing something about what is the FAA doing to protect our communities and our people? But we just, unfortunately, we, we turn this blind eye on some substances that might be more socially acceptable than others. So, is there any questions so far? Anna, do you have anything you wanna add?
1: I do actually. I just wanted to throw in there that um, our sober living house in Petoskey, that um, it's uh, MAR certified, which is Michigan Associate, Association of Recovery Residents, NAR and ARCO. Um, and then on top of that, a project that um, Joyce and I were working on together at the United Way, um, we have a sign that should be finished on Friday Uh, Joyce was so inspired when she seen one. I'm not sure where, but she sent me a message. Go ahead.
2: No, it was a care of Southeast Michigan. It was a, an A-frame or a sandwich board type sign. Mm
1: -hmm. She sent me this picture and was like, see what we can do about getting one of these. And then also see if we can get permission to hand this out. Well, at, at the United Way. And i talked to the director there and she also said well hey we have a food pantry so why don't you talk to them and get permission that when people are driving through have the sign and sit out there and offer it and so we have permission uh we got uh granted funding and we have a sign being produced as we speak it's been finished and being shipped and will be picked up friday so looking forward to having that um it'll have our funders uh equipped for freedom and then free narcan on both sides so anything else is that it i don't think that i that i can think of anything that we provide
2: do you guys have any questions for us so many questions because great we
3: we want we want four of those houses here in kelkaska maybe six um (laughs) Well, we probably could use them actually. So no, I guess I'm really not getting how, um, I know Suzanne has been doing some talking to you, uh, Joyce and Anna, that you've told her about kind of the process to get started, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, you, expounded on how hard it is to the the bureaucracy and the hoops you gotta drop jump through to get somebody um, into an established treatment center. What are the hoops and the process to start a, um, a you know a recovery house
2: a sober yeah. living room? so um as of last year uh around January time frame actually 2019 January timeframe uh, we started hosting forums on being able to implement recovery housing. We had we asked the communities to come together in the 21 counties and anyone interested in starting recovery housing, please come to this forum. We invited um, you know other recovery operators, uh, Nathan's house in Boeing House, uh, Sisters of Sobriety, myself, equipped for freedom, and then some other interested parties. And then we had Mar, uh, Michigan Association of Recovery Residences has also come and speak, and from that, we've been able to uh, open more housing. So, uh, Joppa House, they expanded their faith-based housing into recovery housing as well, and then we had the Fellowship House in um, Alpena area also opened, and then we had another faith-based organization for recovery housing, it's like, kind of like a dual, uh, they're they're strong faith-based, but also focused on recovery. Um, Walk With Him Six in Petoskey also opened. So from that, we didn't grow a lot, but we still grew some. So we added some recovery capital into our region. Um, On behalf of NWARC, the Northern Michigan Opioid Response Consortium, I provide technical assistance uh, to anyone wanting to start recovery housing. So if anyone has any interest on how to get started, uh, I can certainly be a guide and a mentor uh, through that. There's a couple of things I suggest is uh, you need to designate, um, you know, are you going to be the one that manages this or uh, what level of recovery housing do you wanna provide? So there's, two, in MARS standards, there's four levels of recovery housing. One being that a group of people live in a house, almost like a sorority type uh, atmosphere. They manage and uh, control each other. There's no formal supervision, uh, but they have a right within themselves, within that house to say who lives there and who doesn't. Uh, You have a level two, which is what uh, Equip for Freedom is, is. So we may have a house manager in there and they are basically the eyes and ears of the house and Kim and I provide the direct or formal supervision of the women who reside there. A level three uh, can be uh, an extension of treatment, meaning they can provide services uh, within that recovery home for counseling, behavioral health, uh, life skills, et cetera. And the reason why I say that is some city ordinances uh, restrict you from being able to provide treatment uh, within the city limits. So Boyne Falls house, the two men's houses, Nathan's house, he can't provide any type of treatment uh, within those housing um, for men, he has two houses. So he also is a level two. Um, a place, the Sisters of Sobriety is a level three. So they provide on-site behavioral health counseling through a licensed therapist or counselor. And then you have a level four, which is most often um, a recovery house that's an extension of a treatment center. So Bear River Health is looking to expand their services to offer recovery housing. They could still be a one, two or three, but often the person's going to be engaged in um, intensive outpatient. They're going to probably have some deeper connection to that treatment center. Or another example would be Harbor Hall has men and women recovery housing. And it's an extension of that um, treatment facility. So whatever that organization's policies are for how they operate or their procedures, they're most likely gonna fall under that same for their recovery housing, okay? So you wanna determine the level of housing that you're gonna provide and then who's going to help provide you and manage this house um, I will tell you that if it was just me running the Equip for freedom, women's recovery home, I couldn't do it on my own. And so again, I've got Kim as a backup and, and she and I address, uh, on a formal level, all of those things, but there's no way I could probably do it on my own and have a full-time job and manage my family and give some time to myself. So you got to think about those aspects. And then when you look at, um, what a recovery home is and how many people you can put in there. Uh, for an example, uh, as Anna stated, the Equip House uh, can has a max capacity of 11 women that we can have in there. That is based on the bedroom square footage space. So it's 50 square feet per person. And then it also is designated by the number of bathrooms within that house, how many people you can have in that house. So I think by MARS standards, you can have up to eight women sharing a bathroom, but don't quote me on that, it might be six. Uh, But our house has three bathrooms, so we don't have to worry about so much uh, that max requirement. I would never put six women to share one bathroom. Uh, The women have a choice of which bathroom they wanna use. There's no um, designation there and they have three bathrooms to choose from. the one master bedroom is 300 square feet. And if you divide that by the 50 square feet, that means we can have six beds in there. And so what we have is we have three bunk beds that determines how many women can be in that one room. And then we have two additional bedrooms. One of them is really small. Um, That was reserved for our single house manager Um, but we had to make some adjustments with COVID and in the event that we have a presumptive positive case, uh, or if we have someone that becomes really ill, we'll move them to that single bedroom. We've never had to use that yet. And, um, so that right now that bedroom is staying empty in the event that we would have someone become ill, uh, so that they can somewhat isolate and quarantine from the other women in the house. Um, and then our other-
0: your yeah. your, policies, so yeah, your
3: policies yeah, your policies for stuff like that. I'm I'm assuming some of it's kind of dictated to you by by Mar, but yeah. um but some of it you probably have had to come up with on your own. So like yeah. have, have you written a, a like a
2: policy book for different yes. things and situations? Yes. So to I'm gonna answer that in two parts. Yes. Um we have policies for everything. You do have to have policies for um a person that becomes positive for the use of substances and what is your action plan for that. Uh, but I will add that any of the policies that we have already developed for Equip for Freedom, again, technical assistance through Enmark, we openly share those to anyone that wants to start recovery housing. So you don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel. The way that we came about our policies is we took uh, Nathan's house policies, we took another women's recovery home, and we reached out to another uh, men's recovery home and we kind of blended some policies all together. And then we took out the words men and changed it with female. And um, then when we really started to deep dive into our policies, uh, the one thing that I'm really proud of in our policies is that we don't use words like uh, dirty screening or dirty drop, because we do provide substance use testing at random or upon suspicion. We have expected results and unexpected results. In the event that we have an unexpected result um, that someone tested positive for a substance that is not one of the medications uh, prescribed to them, and I'm no scientist, so I don't sit there and say, well, it could be this and it could be that. Um, We ask that the individual go and get a toxicology report so that we can say, yes, this was one of your medications or no. You know, let's have a conversation wrapped around what this uh, forensic lab report states, what an individual tested positive of. Most often, um, the test results that we get on a preliminary drug test cup are just preliminary. And so we don't interrogate, we don't threaten, we don't, you know, ask a bunch of questions about what substances they use. We just simply said, looks like we have an unexpected result. We're going to ask that you go to one of these three or four places and get a toxicology report. Um, we also don't use the words like addict or alcoholic in our policies. We have person in recovery, uh, woman in recovery, things like that, and um, so we really took out even that stigmatizing language. I really dislike the dirty screening, dirty drop, and, and we would find that in other policies that we reviewed prior to making our own, but we have a really good set of policies, I think. And then again, we openly share those to anyone. So the fellowship house that opened in Alpina, we gave them all of our policies. They took our logo off the top. They put their logo on it, changed maybe some of the things. And then there they are. They didn't have to go and write all the things for ethics, um, you know, social media policy, uh, expectations, things like that. But it, it, we go pretty in depth. And we've changed it along the way. Of course, um, it's taken a lot of editing. And then, anytime we change a policy, we provide a new copy to all the women in there. We update our website, and then we have everyone sign it so that they're aware of it. But um, right, did you, now-
3: did you have any problems in in the communities you're in with like planning and zoning, or and and physically obtaining? a
2: house how yep. could you explain a little bit about that for us on obtaining the house yes so uh the one of the things is uh you need to determine location and we originally wanted to be closer to downtown so that would be within the city limits at that time we already knew that harbor hall was struggling to open recovery housing within the city limits they've actually worked on that for over 10 years and they have finally been able to expand their recovery housing so we knew of that issue already existing, and we always get that same response, not in my backyard. Um, what people don't realize is these people already live in your backyard. You're just failing to recognize it. And, um, but the house that we chose was just a little bit outside of the city limits. Um, it's a beautiful little farmhouse. We also provide tours to anyone that ever wants to come and see it. Just connect with me or Anna. We'd love to show you the house. We're very proud of it. Um, So we did have some obstacles to work through on that. If we were to look at something inside the city limits, I would encourage you to look for a house that is already zoned multifamily. And then you don't have to go to the zoning board and say, I wanna put a recovery house in here. The house is already zoned multifamily. You don't have to do anything. Um, But since that, some other great advocacy work has been done. And while we had those struggles a couple of years ago, uh, mayor John Murphy, who I've worked hard to build a relationship with, uh, the mayor has offered his full support and proclamation of supporting the recovery community. Um, if you follow the news, Alpena still struggles today with being shut down and uh, not being zoned appropriately. So there are those things that exist. You can look outside of the city limits for a house, but you also have to consider then transportation you know, is there a public bus system? How far are you for uh, women to get to their employment? Many of them don't have vehicles. Uh, that's another advoga- navigational aspect that Anna can help with or myself can help with is, what does the step process look like to getting a restricted license or um, an interlock device installed in your car? What does it look like to get the interlock device taken out of your car? And we provide that stuff to individuals as well. So. Location of the property is certainly something that needs to be considered. The size of the house, uh, zoning zoning ordinances, what level of house you can have, and what is that struggle going to look like. Um, There's a gentleman that uh, I've been working with uh, since we did that one forum. And he purchased the Rose O'Day Motel in Houghton Lake. He's probably behind now over a year because of zoning issues with um, Roscommon County in the zoning commission there. He bought the Rose O'Day Motel and he was going to turn it into a 30 bed women's recovery house. And he basically has been on a hold for over a year. The good news is, is he's worked through all those issues and um, is set to open August 1st and providing thirty a 30 bed facility. So, um, his operation is going to look much different. It'll probably be one to two women per what would have been an old motel room, and then the main lodge of his facility is where they will do the community support group meetings, um, have a family day on Sundays. He's got a state of the art, beautiful kitchen where he Ordered in these beautiful uh, flat top grills and and uh, vent hood systems, and he plans to uh, host Sunday breakfasts with everyone and their families on Sundays um, in this community uh, area. So there are a lot of struggles that still exist, and it, it can be very frustrating. Um, Mar is a great resource for that. Jeff Jeffrey Van is a former attorney, and he can help. Uh, navigate through those technical legal issues as well. So, um, did I answer your question, Lisa? I think there's another part question that I think I kind of glossed did.
3: No, you did, you are are tracking right with me because I I mean, I think we've all heard of the, you know, seen the articles in the paper where somebody wants to do something that's great to to, um, add to that recovery capital and, and then it gets shot down because yeah the whole not in my backyard I mean you know I myself have a have a big old house that basically only I live in and over the years I've taken in a lot of young people or this or that and this is nothing formal it just happened that way yeah. and you know so um not that I'm planning to do that because I could see all the hurdles probably that, that it would take, but knowing there's somebody like you that's forged the way that we can direct them to you. Yes. Talk to Joyce. She's the one that knows the ins and outs is awesome.
2: Then I'll tell you, there's nothing I love more about my job than uh, helping someone through the recovery housing aspect and just being able to give them those policies. And they're like, why are you doing this? And I'll tell you why we do that. Um, We tell them take our logo off, put your logo on it, edit them as free as you want. I don't, you know, we don't mandate anything with that, but um, those policies were so freely given to us. And so we're just passing on that favor. And it is a lot Uh, when you have to upload every policy to become MARS certified. And there's policies that I never thought that I had to think or dream of. um, And I would have never known to have them, but someone else along the way was able to give them to me. That's a blessing in itself. And that's what that's part of that recovery capital and that connections and relationships that we build.
3: How long are, are the ladies allowed typically to stay at your house? Or what? Yeah. Maybe it's not allowed. How long do they choose to stay at your
2: house? Yeah. So um, we ask that they uh, prior part of the application process that they go through is that they at least make a six month minimum commitment to being there. We want them for at least six months. That's a good enough uh, stabilization. Uh, what we've seen from the ladies is that they generally around that four to five month, they start planning to spread their wings. Um, we've had ladies say, I'm never leaving here the rest of my life. And I plan plan on getting sick of me because I'm not leaving. And we say that we think that's great. So there's no, there's no cap or maximum of how long they can stay there. Um, but we just ask, that they make a six month minimum commitment.
3: How are their, um, I'm sorry, go ahead, Suzanne.
0: I was just wondering how you financed it.
3: I was just gonna say, do they
2: have to pay rent? (laughs) Okay, so uh, this is is what not to do. So when you have two strong women that wanna open a recovery home um, and Kim and I, where we worked, did not have a long enough work history to apply for a traditional home loan, right? Um, My husband is prohibited from signing a contract with another business or organization, which is what Equip for Freedom is. So he couldn't finance it, even though he had that stable work history. And Kim's husband works two months on, two months off, you know, somewhere else. So on paper, it doesn't look like he has stable work history either, even though he's paid you know, on a salary basis, right? So two strong women that say, I want to open recovery housing, what do we do? We max out credit cards. And I would suggest you never do that. You do fundraising, you raise money, and you do it the right way or have stable work history when you do and apply for a traditional home loan or business loan. That is the safest way to do, go about it. Um, but that's how we did it, and i never suggest it again. I and mean, we would never do that again. Um, but uh, once you're MARS certified, then you can apply for funding um, through NMRE. So NMRE, and I don't know what the current support or structure is, because I haven't looked into that, but when we opened the house, once we were MARS certified, any habitable expense uh 11 pillows 11 bed sheets 11 comforters 11 beds um dishes towels uh eating space so a dining room table to to fit 11 women or two t- dining room tables to fit 11 women um living room seating space all of those habitable expenses are reimbursable through Anna Marie, or at least they were So we would turn in the receipts and um, I think the max that you can do for habitable expenses was around 20 some thousand dollars, right? Um, And then we applied for a per diem grant, meaning that uh, NMRE currently pays $14 per day per person for them to live in recovery housing if they are engaged in treatment and enrolled in an IOP Uh, treatment program. So right now, uh, starting in, I want to say June, we were able to um, till the end of the grant, which ends uh, August 31st, the women do not have to pay a shared living expense. It is billed to NMRE for their per diem rate of rate of pay. Prior to that, um, we had a $500 shared living expense. That the women had to pay out of their own pocket and we i want to touch on that a little bit because i think it's really important we call it a shared living expense and when they come into equip for freedom we have them sign a guest expectation uh contract meaning we're inviting you to be a guest in our home the one number one requirement is that you have to remain clean and sober and in the event that you are not clean and sober, we're going to uninvite you to be a guest. So, legally, do we have to go through the eviction process through the court? Yes, but we haven't had anyone really challenge it because they kind of know that up front. So, where we're not a landlord and they're not a tenant and they don't pay rent, they pay a shared living expense. Just like if I was Lisa was going to invite me into her home and you can stay here on the weekend, but you can't drink or smoke. And if I was to drink or smoke, she could say, I need you to leave. You are no longer a guest in my home and you're no longer welcome. So we take that same approach because you do not want uh, somebody who's intoxicated or inebriated um, within that house still residing there and potentially causing someone else a return to use. So, Um, so there's multiple ways that they can be funded. Um, there are sometimes someone leaving treatments and trying to get into a recovery housing. They do have to have a security deposit. Uh, and sometimes that first month's, uh, shared living expense. There are a lot of churches, organizations, uh, families against narcotics has a scholarship fund for recovery housing. Um, many times the, the churches will, uh, Help support that. Salvation Army also helped support that. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul has supported many other women. And in Emmett County, the Little Traverse Bay Bands has supported our women greatly with at least their first months and sometimes continued into the third and fourth month of that shared living expense if they qualify for certain programs. Um, The the tribe, Little Traverse Bay Bands of the Indians has not just supported those of, um, that are Native American, they've supported any woman who has become victim to um, assault, uh, domestic violence, substance use disorder. So they have many programs that someone can sometimes qualify for in order to get that assistance and they don't necessarily have to be um, identify as a Native American. So they do help other populations as well through their own state and federal grants. So lots of different ways to help uh, work around that. Um, A person can pay the $14 per day to be there. They can also pay bi-weekly or weekly if they need to, but traditionally we do a a monthly shared living expense. So I have, of course, I always, I told you I had a ton of questions. Great, that's better than none.
3: they're kind of unrelated, but they both occurred to me and then I'll ask you the one and then maybe the other one is a a good one to wrap up with. The first one is um, I've noticed that there's so much disinformation or confusion between um, having Medicaid and having private insurance. So do you strictly take uh, ladies that, um, that are Medicaid or um, do you also take folks with private insurance and would you care to comment on maybe those discrepancies because it drives it, it kind of seems like to me sometimes if you have private insurance it's almost more difficult to get treatment and recovery housing um, and supports and then the other question um, like I said I know you're a fun person, and I'm sure you guys do some fun um, programming things Mm -hmm. in your houses to keep up morale and include families, and so maybe you'd like to talk to us a little bit about what some of those other not so serious things that you do in your houses.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do we take women uh, that have uh, Medicaid or private insurance? We take any women into the recovery house that wants to live in a stable environment that's free from drugs and alcohol. Um, They may not have any insurance. That doesn't matter to us at all. Um, Majority of the women that we get uh, warm handoffs from come from treatment centers. And majority of them are gonna be the ones there in Emmett County And so a lot of our referrals come from Bear River and Bear River does not take private insurance at this time. They only take uh, Medicaid to my knowledge. If they do take private, it's very few uh, private companies that they are contracted with. Um, But we've had people that um, haven't ever been to treatment. We do ask that they enroll in an IOP program if they've never been to treatment. And if they have been into treatment, we ask that it's within the last couple of years because they're going to need those skills and tools to manage uh, community living. Community living is not for everyone. I don't even know if I could do it. I don't know if I could live in a house full of 11 women. I really don't. Uh, You've really got to communicate and uh, kitchen space, bathroom space, showers, uh, not being disruptive at early morning when someone has to be at work at 5 a.m., Uh, Those are the things as Anna also talked about that we discuss at our house meeting is, uh, can you stop being so disrupted at 4.30 in the morning when you are getting ready for work? Um, So anyone can come there. If um, we're unable to bill NMRE for their day of stay, their $14 per diem costs, um, most private insurances don't offer the supportive recovery housing aspect. And therefore that woman would probably have to reach out to other resources or pay the shared living expense on her own. Um, That funding isn't always a guarantee. And this is the first time we've had it for the length of time that we've had it from NMRE. So traditionally they pay out of pocket. Um, We have found that most women, who support themselves in recovery housing, stay longer and stay engaged in their recovery. Um, You almost have to have that buy-in. And for the ladies that, what we've found is that we wanna make sure that there's a plan for them to save money if their days of stay are being covered. What is your long-term plan for maybe spreading your wings and getting out on your own how much money do you have to have saved to get your first month's rent and deposit somewhere else? Um, so yes, uh, type of insurance does not matter to us. They could have any type of insurance and come from any level of background. They just have to be committed to their recovery and that be disruptive and get along well with others. And one of the questions we always ask is, how do you get along well with other women? And everyone interviewing says, I get along great with other women. And I'm like, All righty then. <laughs> Let's let me see if I can answer this or ask this question in a different way. You know, tell me about some conflict resolution that you've had with other women, and so maybe we can kind of um, dial that down a little bit. And, uh, and so there's there's a lot to go through, and it's a learning process for many of the women that come to Equip for Freedom um, to choose their recovery housing. As far as fun things to do uh, we have a rock polisher and tumbler. So the ladies like going to the beach. And so we bought a rock tumbler that they can throw their rocks in there and tumble them and learn about that process. Um, they, uh, we've taken them to an escape room and that was been, has been one of our Tuesday night meetings. So instead of sitting down and eating dinner, we eat a quick dinner. And then we go uh, to an escape room and lock all of ourselves in a, in a room for an hour, which, was fun. It, it still turned out well. everyone laughed. It wasn't it wasn't torture. Um, we've done that. Uh, actually play on a softball team with a community recovery church group and a couple of the women also play and then on game nights uh, the other ladies try and attend when their work schedules allow. Um, we do a lot of community building things within the house. And uh, we engage them with, uh, you know, different aspects of how they can volunteer when there is going to be uh, recovery-friendly community events as well. So we do as much as we can to kind of get them to expand their hobbies and their interests and finding out what they like to do. Um, The two ladies that play on the softball team, one of them was an experienced softball player in the past. Uh, when she was in high school, and the other one never threw a ball, never wore wore a glove, and she's doing great, she's like, I love it, you know, so um, Anna also worked with the Fit Body Boot Camp, and got all of the ladies a one-week free pass to try out uh, the Fit Body Boot Camp, a lot of them were like, what can we do for exercise, what can we do, Um, we have bikes at the house, we have helmets for them to ride, Um, but you know, early in recovery, there's, they Their motivation hasn't kicked in just yet. They're still going through some of those pause or post-acute withdrawal symptoms. So as that starts to stabilize out, then they want to become more active. And so we do um, engage them in other things. Uh, last year, there was a kayaking event that was organized with the recovery community. Uh, there's lots of things that they, they like to do. We're thinking about doing a, a
0: kayaking for recovery here in calcaska county yes
2: let me know i will be there
0: yeah we're gonna call it the sober float i don't know if that's an appropriate name but yeah You, you you may have kind of answered this already but do you uh allow women on buprenorphine to stay
2: yes yes i do and here's why i am a huge um proponent of medically assisted treatment. I do. One of the things that we do ask the women is, can you manage your prescription medications? And that's their prescription medication. So they can have any prescription medication because I'm not a doctor and I can't designate what they can and can't have. But as long as they're able to manage those, um, then yes, they can come there with anything uh, that's prescribed by a doctor except medical marijuana. Okay. Um, that's not the type of environment that we would want to uh, promote within recovery housing. However, there are some houses that also allow that. And I don't know if you guys are aware, there's actually a, a thing called a wet house. Uh, there's a wet house in Traverse City. So, I mean, that might be even something that they have adopted and allowed. That's the only thing we don't allow. One of the things I think I'm most proud about in my own personal recovery, because I am a woman in long-term recovery, my drug of use was alcohol. And when I heard about MAT, I didn't quite understand it. And I think I had my own uh, personal opinions of those. And someone set me straight one day and I'm like, you know, what? I need to learn about this a little bit more. And I challenged myself to learn about medically assisted treatment and recovery and um, why someone would choose that route. And I am a huge proponent of it, as long as they can manage it appropriately. And we do uh, do pill counts and medication checks um, on, at random or upon suspicion.
0: When, uh, for NMORC, when you guys are doing outreach in the Northern counties, what are some of the challenges you guys see with uh, trying to get more providers uh, on board with MAT?
2: Um, I think we've had a lot of people take the, uh, at that time it was the X waiver training or the waiver training. And once they take that, then they just decided, um, they didn't want to offer that in their clinic. They thought it was going to bring in a different clientele into their offices and they didn't want to have to explain. Um, and these are their comments, um, didn't like the perception it was going to bring to their office clinical setting. we do encourage uh, different academic detailing aspects. Uh, Dan Oliver, who um, was our SUD coordinator, kind of helped bridge a lot of that. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers that we do have is just the understanding and the reason for doing it, and then the providers deciding not to do it for a multitude of reasons. Unfortunate reasons, of course.
0: Does anybody else have any more questions for Joyce? It's 12 30, and Lisa and I have to get over to the farmer's market by one (laughs) o'clock. Anything else? Well, thanks so much, Joyce. Uh, You provide us with a ton of information. Um, We could probably have another show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. Just say,
3: come back anytime and jump in. Yeah.
2: uh, Because actually there's more
0: questions and I mean, you're just a a wealth of information.
2: Yeah. If you want to email me more questions, I'd be happy to answer those. Okay.
0: Awesome. Awesome.
2: Well, thanks everybody for
0: joining.